We're going to be in Psalm 8 tonight, Psalm chapter number 8. Um, we're going to look at this psalm as we expound it together. I will give you a little heads up next week. Uh, I plan to start into the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to go through the book. And so if you want to get a jump start, you can begin reading that book with me. I just came through that book and very rich, very uh, very needed for our uh, Christian life. And so I'm, I'm going to endeavor to come through it expositionally. So pray for me with that. It's not uh, the easiest book in the world, so uh, I'll need your prayers with it. But uh, tonight we're going to look at Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, and the title of the message is The Majesty of God. I love this psalm. You know, I love all of the psalms, but there are certain ones that stick out to you and uh, really have some particular things that are said in them that uh, speak to your heart. But uh, we're going to read Psalm 8, and we'll come through this together. <clears throat> this is a psalm of David, and he writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We think about that question, how majestic is our God? Is it even possible to answer such a question? What does it mean to what does it mean that he is majestic? What is majesty? The word majestic refers to mighty and magnificent. Uh, some translations may render this as excellent, that he is excellent. And so when we think about who God is and all that he does, he is majestic. He is magnificent. He is excellent in his character and in all, that, all of his works. Now, we may think of many things in this world that we would consider majestic or excellent, something that is good in nature. Uh, for instance, an excellent vehicle has been made with possibly the best parts and materials and it, it, you know, it operates very efficiently. We would say, oh, man, it's an excellent vehicle. Then maybe the, you, you've come across an excellent meal someone's put together. It's the right foods, the right seasonings, and uh, tastes good, and it just, you say, oh, it was excellent. I once ate at a, at a restaurant in Kentucky, and the name of the restaurant was Majestic. And uh, so by that name, they're claiming, well, their food is excellent, right? It's majestic. It's wonderful. Well, I'll just tell you that. I'll rename it to Mediocre. Uh, it wasn't, it was not majestic food. It wasn't very good. Um, it was okay, but uh, you could get through it. But it wasn't majestic. It wouldn't be on that level, right? We've all had those kind of experiences. There's many things we could say are excellent or majestic, but the majesty of God surpasses all that we could imagine, surpasses all that we could think of what is excellent and what is good. There's no one and nothing that compares to the majesty of God. He alone is uh, the perfect being whose majesty has simply eternally existed above all else. It is eternal. Now, the psalmist, who is David here, I love how in this psalm he bookends this psalm with the same statement. He opens in verse 1 and closes in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. It's majestic. So the majesty of God really is seen throughout the whole of this psalm in various ways, primarily in his creative power, but also in his special dignity that he gives to mankind. Now, as the creator, we'll find in a moment, he's the sovereign over all. He's the God who has created by his own divine power and will. And also, he's the God who has given special attention to mankind. And as we look at the majesty of God in this text, what should the majesty of God in this text provoke us to? It should provoke us to praise and to worship. After all, the book of Psalms is a book of worship and praise, isn't it? And so many of the Israelites in old days, they would sing this hymn. Uh, Some through church history have sung this hymn. And so this is a psalm of worship. So I've broken it down into two headings tonight. I want you to see, firstly, the, uh, the glory of the Creator. The glory of the Creator. And so notice with me, firstly, that He is majestic in His character. This will describe His majesty and his, how He is majestic. He is majestic in His character. In verse 1, the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord. Now, I want to consider the personal aspect of what's being said here and who God is. The psalmist first uses the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. So you notice there's two titles here, Lord and Lord. He repeats it, but it's a different word in the Hebrew language. You'll notice in most translations, that first word for Lord, it is all caps, right? Anybody in the Bible have it that way? All capitalized? That signifies that this term Yahweh is being used. It's the covenant name of God given among his people. It is his holy name, and it's a very intimate name since God is in covenant with his people. The special name that follows that is Lord. It's a Hebrew word, Adon. It means Lord or Master on earth. And so it conveys his supremacy, his sovereignty, that that he is the ruler. He's the master. And here's what David's pointing out for us. David, although he is king in Israel, recognizes who the true king is. Who is the true king? It is his God. His God is the sovereign ruler and master over not just Israel, but all of creation and all of uh, the universe, all of existence. He's the one who has supreme authority, who governs and rules over all. He's the Lord over his people. But I notice the personal nature of this too. Notice he says, this almighty God, he is our Lord. It makes it very intimate. It makes it very personal. He is our Lord. He is our sovereign. He's our master. He's our creator. Now, you consider this truth in a personal matter for you, that he is intimately connected with his people. The psalmist said in Psalm 71, 5, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. This psalmist recognized the Lord as his own from his very youth, the one who he trusted in, the one whose hope was in. Think of how long the Lord has been your hope and your trust. It just dawned on me just this past week that um, I've been saved. I've known the Lord for 25 years. I thought, man, that makes me feel really old. (laughs) I'm only 32, but I got saved young, you know, when I was seven years old. But I can't ever cease to thank the Lord for that day in which he drew me and converted me and brought me to faith. And from that day to today... My trust and hope has been in him. He is my God. And that's how David views this. He is my sovereign, my Lord. How glorious is that? 
Now, what else does David say of his Lord here in verse 1? He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How magnificent and excellent is the name of the Lord. Now, understand that the name here it is of the Lord, it is synonymous with the person of God. It's more than just his title, how you identify him. It is who he is. The name of the Lord is the person of God. His character and nature are in his name, for his name is representative of all that he is. So when we think of who God is, he is the all-powerful, all-present, all-wise, all-knowing, unchanging, eternal, holy, righteous God. So much more we could add to that list, right? His name is who he is. Just like we also are known by our own names. We hear the name of someone and we automatically, if we know them, we have an understanding of their character, right? That name carries with it a certain character. Working at the auto shop with dad, we had you know several mechanics. Some were good, some were bad, and we had one who complained and didn't do things right. He made excuses for making little mistakes and things that he couldn't get done, and he eventually quit. So he, he had a bad name among us, but a few months later, he comes back and, and uh, says, you know what, I'd like to get my job back. And I wasn't in there for the conversation, but I go in there, and Dad says, guess who wants their job back? And he mentions his name. And just by his name, I think, oh, no. Oh, no, we can't have this guy back. Names identify character. Names are important. They're more than just the letters that put together for our identification or, or on our license plate. Your character is attached to your name. And so when it comes to the Bible, the name of the Lord is attached to his very being, who he is. And so the name of the Lord is majestic because he is majestic. He is magnificent beyond comparison. And that is the reason we as his people, we trust and hope in the name of the Lord because we're trusting and hoping in the person who is the Lord. Proverbs 18, or yeah, 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Well, what's that mean? The name of the Lord. You're running to a person, not just a name, the person, who he is. It's God's name that's in his character. So he is majestic in his character. But not only that, letter B, he is majestic in his creation. He is majestic in his creation. And a large portion of this, of this chapter deals with that. If you look at verse 1 again, notice we see the connection between his character and his creation. His name is majestic where? In all the earth. In all the earth. Now, we see that same statement, bookend, in verse 9. He is majestic in all the earth, his name. Why is God's name majestic in all the earth? Because he created all the earth. Because it all comes from him. It all has flowed from his power and design and in creation. Creation reveals the glory and majesty of the creator. Now, the point is not that all people in the earth know the Lord or that all of them acknowledge his power and his glory, but rather that the faithful, they know and acknowledge that he is the mighty sovereign over all. And even those who don't recognize God as a creator they can't escape the evidence of his majesty. They can't escape that. You see, the praise of God is all around us in creation itself. The praise in heaven, as we read in Scripture, manifests this very thing. I love what is being sung in this heavenly scene in Revelation 4.11. They're crying out, singing and praising, and they say, Worthy are you. Worthy are you, O Lord 
and God who receives glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. You see, every detail, every detail of creation flows from the mind and power of this omnipotent sovereign, this one God. Every complex design that man can't even fully grasp his mind around has been ushered forth by the hand of the Almighty. And so the psalmist goes on to say of the Lord, you have set your glory above the heavens. You've set your glory above the heavens. The the word glory here, again, it emphasizes the very essence of God and His beauty and all that He is. That He is the most high and glorious person in all of existence. God is above the heavens, for he exceeds all creation. The measure of God's glory is endless. There is no way to measure it. You can't put it in a box. It is beyond measurement. It is endless. And yet we, as his creation, we get a glimpse of it just by viewing around us what he's put in place. Simply by looking up into the heavens, you get a glimpse of the glory this great God. No matter where you are in the world, the glory of the Lord is seen, whether it's recognized by those who see it or not. You say, how so? Because everyone in this world is part of the creation that God has given. Now, you look at Psalm 19 for a moment, 1 through 3. We've covered this text before, but just to remind you, Psalm Psalm 19, another Psalm of David. David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. What's David saying? The language of creation is universal to all men. Now, we go across country and borders, and we're gonna, we enter into areas of the world that they don't speak the same language as us, do they? I can't go to China or Russia or or, or, or Japan and just start talking with somebody because I don't know their language. They don't know mine. We're going to have a miscommunication. But creation is a universal language that testifies creator, 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 the glory of this creator. God's signature is all over creation from the stars above us to the earth beneath us and no person escapes this testimony of God's glory. And this, friend, is why All of mankind is without excuse before their creator. Creation screams creator. Doesn't matter how much they stick their fingers in their ears and say, no, I won't listen. It screams creator and they see it. Paul put it this way in Romans 1 and verse 20. That his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. These God-hating, hard-hearted people who want nothing to do with him, they are without excuse because creation testifies of his eternal power and his divine nature. So they are without excuse. How does mankind not see this excellency of God in all the earth? How could mankind not give glory due to his name in all of creation? You know, imagine a painter painting a masterpiece of a work, and it's hung up in a museum, and you go in to see this 
this, uh, this museum, and you come across this masterful painting. It's beautiful. It catches your eye, and you look at that painting, and, and uh, you know, the, the artist is right there, and he's just taking it all in and, and thinking, man, they, they really are enjoying this. And, and then you blurt out and say, wow, look at this painting, how, how it just came together by itself by accident. How marvelous is this? Credit always goes to the painter, doesn't it? Because painters don't paint, 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 painting and paintings don't just paint themselves. Just like buildings don't build themselves, cars don't make themselves, you didn't make yourself. All of this points to the majesty of the glorious God who is ours. But yet that's how many people think today. Because they hate God. Their hearts are blind and they love darkness. But that doesn't change the fact that all of creation displays his glory. And someday all the world's going to bow before him. Confess him as Lord. Let her see he's majestic in his conduct. The way he works. The way he plans. All of his ways. Everything God does is majestic. Now here we come to verse 2. And you notice the detail of how God's chosen to work. <laughs> he says, <clears throat> Out of the mouth of babies and infants... Have you established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger? Now, think about what's said there for a moment. David says God ordained strength from the mouth of babies and infants. As far as I know, babies and infants aren't that strong. Now, they get a little stronger. Spurgeon's getting pretty strong. He's, he's going to be a mountain climber or something. I mean, he's trying to climb shelves and everything under the sun. And, uh, but that's not what he's talking about here. What's David mean by this? We have a reference to this passage by Jesus in the New Testament that makes it a little clearer, I think. Matthew 21, go with me there. Matthew 21, look at verse 14 through verse 17 just for a moment. Matthew 21, verse 14 through 17. This is a passage in which Jesus, he just went into the temple, he turned over the money changers and drove them out. You know, they were abusing God's house and he says this is be a house of prayer, you've made it a den of robbers, because that's what they were doing. They were taking advantage of people and stealing by way of their their, uh, selling there. But look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies have you prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city of Bethany and lodged there. What do you have, what find happened in this scene? Well, these religious elite who should have recognized their Lord didn't. They hated Jesus. And they come in there mad that he's healing the blind and the lame and that these children, little, little children, are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. To Jesus, that, that, that was a, a, a Jewish phrase that, that spoke of salvation has come in him. Hosanna to the son of David, recognizing him as the kingly line of David. Well, that made them mad. But that's what, this is where Jesus points out that God used even these children to usher forth his praise when these adult religious leaders did not even recognize or give God the praise he is worthy of. Now, the central point of this text and the one in Psalms here, as we come back to it, 
is that God uses the weak and helpless, those who seem to be insignificant, to accomplish his purposes, to bring forth his praise that he deserves, and to still the enemy and the avenger. Jesus applies this to the children in the temple. Even what comes out of the mouths of children has great power from God. And sometimes, every now and then, we'll be talking scripture or we'll uh, be involved in something of that nature and, and Jubilee will say something that I just didn't even realize she even knew. You know, when she was real little, we taught her that, you know, the cross meant was a symbol of Jesus dying on the cross. And one day we were driving down the road, she saw a cross and she said, look, Daddy, that's a cross. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Just so happened, I needed that little reminder in that moment. It was somewhat providential, out of the mouth of babies. And though she doesn't fully comprehend everything, her lips were still used in such a way. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, How often will children tell us of a God whom we've forgotten? Isn't that true? What's being said here? God works through things that appear to be weak and insignificant. This is seen all through the scriptures, even in the context of David's day with the Old Testament. This text may more directly apply to Israel, which was seen as weak and insignificant in comparison to the other Gentile nations and powers around them. The Israelites, who were they without God's calling on them? They were nobodies. Nobodies. But God called them and made them somebodies. He says in Deuteronomy 7, 7, It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. They weren't anything special, and so God said, Okay, I'm going to choose you because you're special. God chose them, and they were the fewest, and they were insignificant. When Jesus came, he reveals this same truth in his own ministry. He didn't come to make the significant in the world more significant. He came to the weak and lowly to manifest his great power. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, he's praying to the Father, and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them even to what? Children. Children. He's not talking about just literal children. He's talking about those who were insignificant, those who were despised by society of that day. God conducts his works for his purposes in ways that man doesn't always understand and see. I think Paul makes this point unmistakably clear in 1 Corinthians 1. He writes to the Corinthians and says, verse 27 and through 29, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God work in this way for this reason? So that no one gets glory but him alone. And the more you study scripture, that's what it's all about. It's not about our glory, it's not about us, it's about him. It's about Christ. Christ is the hero of scripture not us. It's all about him. So he shows us there's zero glory that humanity can claim. He alone is glorious and majestic. He takes us in weakness and uses us for strength. What glory is due to the creator here who is majestic in this way? That brings me to number two. I want you to see the grace of the creator. We see the glory of the creator, but notice also the grace of the creator. Just two things regarding this. 
He is majestic. Understand, this is all about his majesty. How majestic is his name in all the earth? He is majestic in his consideration of man. He is majestic in his consideration, or you could also put care there. His consideration and care of man. If you come to verse 3 through 4, we, we have a humbling reality when it comes to the infinite nature of God and the finite nature of man. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now, by man and son of man, he's referring to humanity itself. But have you ever done what David does here? Have you ever just taken a look at the heavens and thought about how big God is? And I love when on a, it's a clear night, very clear. The moon's shining bright. There's multitudes of stars. It's not like that every night. But those particular nights really catch my attention. And I just have to sometimes stand out in the driveway or out on the deck and just pause and look up and just try to just take it in. You can't even take it in with just one viewpoint. You have to keep looking around, right? And when you do that, it makes you think about how vast God truly is. But not only how vast God truly is, but also how small I really am. Our natural tendency is to think ourselves bigger and more important than we are. That's what we tend to do. We tend to elevate ourselves as if we're the ones in control. But David here says the, he shows us the majesty of the mighty sovereign over this world in his creation. God says through the prophet Isaiah in Psalm 40 and verse 26, lift up your eyes on high. That's a command. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Look for yourself. Who created these things? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. You know, man can't even number the stars, and God has a name for them, right? That blows my mind. It's overwhelming. You see, if we remember that God is mighty beyond our mind's comprehension, and yet he is mindful of us, that will humble us. And friend, humility is what we need every day of our life because we are prone to be proud. That's our natural disposition is to elevate ourselves and do whatever it takes to put ourselves first. We are prone to that. But consider how big God is. Psalm 113, another reference I'll read to you. Verse 4 through 6. The psalmist says, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. That's, that part sticks out to me. Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. You ever been near a hole or a cave and you just look down there and it just looked real far Try to drop something in it and try to see if you can hear it hit the bottom. You're just looking down. Now, think about this vast measurement given for God's exalted 
exalted nature. He looks far down, not just a little ways down, but far down. Some translations render this as that he humbles himself to behold the heavens and the earth. So he lowers himself to look into the heavens and the earth. Now, that does not mean, understand, that does not mean that God's in one location and above all creation, he must come down here. There's a lot of talk about that. God, come down. God, come down. God's already here. God is omnipresent, being in all places at one time. But this language that's being used is meant to convey this image, this picture. It's meant to reveal to God's people how infinitely exalted God is. There's an infinite space between God's holy and high essence and the creation he put in place. And notice that with this in mind, what does David say? He says not only that God is mindful of us, he's thinking, considering us, he also cares for us. Cares for us. You see, when he cares for something, it means he genuinely cares. It He looks with special interest and intervention. God cares for mankind and intervenes in their lives to accomplish his purposes. Now, while there is a general care for all of mankind, there is a general love that God does have for all of mankind, there is a very special and sacred care and love that he has for his own people. They aren't the same. Those who are his children. Remember what Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 5, 7. He said to those believers in trial and tribulation and suffering, he said to them to be casting all your anxieties on him. Why do that? Why cast all your anxieties on the Lord? This is why. Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Now, take that in a very personal way, Christian. He cares for you. Consider this, how God in Christ has cared for you individually. Individually, I speak for myself when I say that I'm not worthy of God's consideration, and yet he considers me. That's the truth for life. The infinite God loves and cares for us finite mortals. You know what this is? <laughs> this is grace. This is grace. This is his majesty, both displayed and experienced by us. Notice with me, letter B, and lastly, he is majestic in his crowning of man. His crowning of man. What do I mean by crowning? I mean that mankind is the crown of God's creation. The most important being created of all that God did create. We see this in verse 5. Notice this. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, or angels, if you would, and crowned him glory and honor. Now he says he's made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, which are the angels. Now that that clarifies that we as mankind, we are not uh, divine or supernatural beings like angels are. They have their own sacred service that God uses them for. Angels are in their own category of God's creation, but even they, understand this, even they do not have the special significance that mankind has. They are indeed special, don't get me wrong, and have divine purposes. But understand that man is the one whom God has crowned as the crown of his creation. Why is that? Well, because man is created in the image of God. 
Angels were not. It doesn't say that in the scriptures. Animals were not. Trees were not. Man is created in the image of God. That's what God said in the very beginning. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You consider that. Jesus, he did not die and atone for angels. Our salvation is something that the angels are curious about. Look into, Hebrews says. There's a distinct difference here. And with man being made in such a special way, notice that God has crowned him with glory and honor. Now, we see that God created man with special intentions. Though he made him lower than the heavenly beings, God has crowned him with glory and honor. Now, who is crowned with glory and honor? Think about that special privilege. Are not kings, even like David, crowned with glory and honor? You see, the, David, the, the language David's using is not just about himself, but about all mankind. This points us to the unique plan God has for man in his creation. It speaks of man's authority. And David expounds further on this in verse 6 through 8. Notice this with me. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Is that not what we read in the very beginning? Right? Genesis 1. If you look at verse 28 and verse 29 of Genesis 1, look at this. He created man in his own image, and he says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Verse 30, to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. David is essentially reciting what God said in the very beginning. Referencing what God told Adam. The whole chapter of Psalm 8 really builds upon this chapter of God's creation. And so David in Psalm 8 is showing the significance of man in this world. That God has put the creation under man's rule. John Calvin rightly comments here and says it is of certainty. It is certainly a singular honor. And one which cannot be sufficiently estimated that mortal man as the representatives of God, has dominion over the world, as if it pertained to him by right. And that to whatever quarter he turns his eyes, he sees nothing wanting which may contribute to the convenience and happiness of his life. God created this world for man. For man. Now, this, there's a big push nowadays that we've got to save the world. Climate change is going to kill us all. That's a bunch of foolishness, friends. The earth will continue as God ordained it until the end. We're not made to save the earth. The earth is made to serve us. And part of this dominion and rule is that we have dominion over this world. It's okay for you to do things on your property. Cut down a tree. Who cares if it makes a tree hugger mad? Do it. It's yours. It's your right. Kill an animal and eat it. 
all of this plays into what David is saying here, that man has been uniquely given this privilege to rule over the earth. Man is to have rule over the earth. He's to subdue it and have dominion over it. But I must note this too, that as we come into this text and we look at the whole scripture, does man have dominion over the world the way that God intended him to have it in the very beginning of it? What happened with man's original exercise of dominion on the earth? It was greatly hindered and halted by Satan. The earth is not the same as it was in Eden from the very beginning, right? It's not a perfect creation anymore. It's been subdued and cursed by sin. Because sin enters through man, the earth is cursed, corruption abounds, and mankind dies. Even creation, Paul says, groans for its deliverance from this bondage. Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So though man is still the mortal ruler in this world, man essentially failed in his exercise of perfect dominion over the world because of sin. Man does not have a perfect dominion over the world as it was intended. Is there any hope for this dominion to become a reality? And this, friend, is where we see the majesty of God once again. It's seen in the God-man, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, and King. The one who came into the world to do what man fails to do and cannot do. You see, Christ is the true and perfect representative of mankind who has all authority over all creation and does exercise dominion over it as God intended it. Now, we see a text that links us to the New Testament. I think it's important to reference. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5 through 10 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through 10. And you'll see that the Hebrews author begins to quote the passage that we've been studying. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who's he talking about here in this context? Namely, Jesus. Jesus Christ, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So you see how the New Testament ties this Psalm of David to Jesus Christ. Now there's a direct application to mankind in general, but there's a specific prophetic application that ties directly to Jesus. Why is this tied directly to Jesus? Because of Christ's triumph over sin, Satan, and death as a man. That's the reason he became a man. As a man, he has undone the defeat of his people and of creation. He has triumphed over that which ruined us in the beginning. He has conquered and claimed back all that is rightfully his, that being his people and his creation. 
Colossians 1, 19 and 20 will spell that out very plainly. We often think of redemption and reconciliation. That's about sinners, about his people. Yes, that's true. But that also includes his creation. Reconciling, he died on the cross to reconcile all things to himself because sin also was in bondage of a curse and sin. He brought everything back to himself by means of the cross. Now, Hebrews says here that God has put in subjection under his feet to Christ everything. He's left nothing outside of his control. Now, what does Jesus say after he's accomplished his victory? Before he ascends into heaven, in Matthew 28, 18, he says, All authority in heaven and where? And on earth has been given to me. So he has all authority up there and down here. But we notice in verse 8 of this, in Hebrews, that the author says, At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Well, that makes me scratch my head. How can everything be in subjection to him, but also not be in subjection to him at the same time? Because when you study the scriptures, you learn that Christ's dominion and his kingdom is both already and not yet. There's a twofold aspect to what he's doing. We are in the kingdom of God while we also look forward to the kingdom of God. He has saved us while there's also a future aspect of our salvation. You see, though Christ has claimed and purchased everything back to himself by the cross, in history he also is progressively and assuredly expanding his kingdom dominion by the power of the gospel and his people. That's what we find. Now, Christian, don't you understand that because of this, this is why we can be confident and we must be active in serving the Lord. Because right now and into eternity, you're already on the winning side. There is no such thing as failure with Christ. It doesn't exist. So you understand that as we take the gospel into the world, it doesn't mean every sinner is going to believe, but it means that Christ will be successful in what his purposes are with it. We're on victory side, both now and on into eternity. Paul said this of Christ's authority right now. Verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26, listen to this. It says, he must reign, present tense, not future tense, although that is true, but present tense, until he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Death. And when is death destroyed? It's destroyed on the last day of the resurrection. It comes back and it's gone forever. So understand that Christ is doing and has done what no man could do. And because we are in Christ... You are included in what he's doing. I can't hardly fathom that. We're included in his present reign. We're included in his kingdom. We're included in what he's doing in this world and on into eternity. And here's what you rejoice in, Christian. His present reign with his authority will ultimately come to a climactic end, a glorious consummation, a final day, a consummation that will usher in our eternal state of the new heaven and new earth. That's what we look forward to. We look forward to that day. And understand, on that day, guess what we'll realize? We will see man's dominion finally and fully achieved all through Jesus Christ. We just get to be included in it. 
We get to be included in what he is doing. Not our power, but his. So I want you to think again upon God's ways, Christian, and how he uses weak and insignificant things for that which is mighty. He has taken man who is weak and frail, redeemed him, made him new, using him in his kingdom for his purposes in this world. You and I have so much to live for. We are, we're living for something supernatural. Something that's literally beyond this world, though it impacts this world. And the same applies to the creation. He's going to do the same to the earth, bringing it to a perfect state for dominion of all the redeemed in the new heavens and new earth. The psalmist closes this passage just as he opened it. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's the bookends. He begins that same thing, that same person. Majestic is your name. He ends, majestic is your name. And everything in between shows us the majesty, the majesty of this glorious God and what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's ultimately going to do, as you see in the scriptures. So I read this and bring it to you as a, as a means of encouraging you to rejoice, rejoice in what God has done. Praise him for his majesty and be active in serving him just as he's called us to serve him.